Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is Secret Agent Men. It is a spy podcast looking at Bond, Born, and Mission Impossible. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined, as always, by Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? Are you ready for what I hope won't be our longest uh, podcast ever, but might be quite long? The real world record. We only have to record for two hours and 33 minutes and 18 seconds. Shout outs to From Broadcast Depth there. Easily our longest podcast in total runtime. <laughs> two and a half hours. Multiple two-hour episodes, I believe, or several that <laughs> encroach on it. But, yeah. I know, do, Lost mo- is a very layered show. <laughs> I could talk about Lost for three hours, to be fair. Let's not. Uh, instead, it's episode 11 of this show, and it is called Skyfall. And I have The show's called Skyfall? No. Episode 11 of this show, and the, the film we're doing... It made sense! Scream! <laughs> I'm feeling punchy tonight. Uh-huh. Well, strap in, because I've spent the last decade saying this is the best Bond film ever, and a lot of my disdain for Spectre is because I feel it is an inferior follow-up, especially to this. Like, if it had followed up from Quantum of Solace, I might have been like, ah, yeah, it was it was decent, but coming off the back of this, I was like, this is hot trash. Leading up to it, when, when I knew we were approaching doing this, I was like, oh god, what if it's not as good as I remember, and Casino Royale was way better than I remember it being, what if I wrong but then once it really got going i was like no i i still feel this is the best one casino is very very good though but casino is very good i mean casino is still my favorite after this i i know i think i think there's i'll do my big speech at the end i think okay but okay i think it's doing a lot that simply isn't being done elsewhere so released october 2012 four years after quantum of solace interestingly all of these bond films so far and up until No Time to Die, released in the autumn, so October, November time, the Mission Impossibles tend to be the summer, except for um, Ghost Protocol, came out in December for some reason. Yeah, uh, a, a very weird decision. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the Bournes, I think, are generally springtime, but I know Jason Bourne was geared up as like a summer blockbuster, but yeah. Directed by Sam Mendes, making his uh, debut on this show. Yeah, this is definitely the first Sam Mendes film in any podcast we've talked about, right? Uh, absolutely like yeah. why would we why would we discuss anything else he's done he only directed american beauty road to perdition jarhead and uh 1917 which everyone feared would win the oscar but oh uh, yeah we are post oscars in this record <laughs> he didn't win the oscar <laughs> thanks everyone yeah a pretty good get i would say he'd worked with daniel craig before and he brings with him roger deakins so that's a good get written again by neil purvis and robert wade who have done all of them so far in some capacity they are joined by john logan who wrote a big that. old gay <laughs> yes. Who <laughs> wrote Gladiator, The Aviator, Hugo, more things that don't fit on this line of these notes, but Penny yeah. Penny Dreadful as well, another yeah. one of those ones where like you watch it and you go like, oh no, this is a, a very gay thing. <laughs> He's a big gay man. <laughs> I don't know how big he actually is, but his gayness is big. So. His gayness is big, and he's like he's one of the reasons why the kind of... This is the second movie this week I've discussed queer coding in, because I, I watched Birds of Prey last night, which is oh, obviously yeah. another movie in which the villain is very heavily queer coded. Hell yeah, he is. We need to talk about that off air. Or maybe <laughs> right now, and I'll just cut it out. What did you think? But a lot of fun. Like, a yeah. hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm yeah. annoyed we walked in about ten minutes late, I think. Uh... 
the first scene we got in there was like she's driving to the Ace Chemical plant, so we missed like the animated opening. Yeah, the animated opening's fun. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we missed too much, but like nah, was... she's just she's getting drunk. She has the idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah, good movie, and it's one of those things where like, uh, and to keep it on topic, like the reason why because we can keep this in. Okay. <laughs> the reason why the queer coding works is because the movie you can tell there is a a kind of queer point of view to it where like mm-hmm. Harley Quinn is bisexual, Renee Montoya is a lesbian, like it's not like the villains are the only things that are othered in the movie. Yes. And and obviously like in this film, whilst they don't make it explicit, James Bond definitely flirts back. What makes you think this is my first time? <laughs> <laughs> and it's John Logan kind of like pushing that boundary. Because I can't imagine that's Neil Purvis and Robert Wayne. <laughs> but like it's great though. No, it's really good. And I think this movie hits another level when Javier Bardem shows up and it's yeah. just this kind of like big it's a different kind of horny energy yeah. to Casino Royale. But it's a it, but again, it's like I feel like these movies are at their best when it's like horny energy, which is kind <laughs> of a little bit homoerotic as opposed to yeah. the rapey woman stuff that James Bond is so famous for. Yes, and does in this movie too. Two hours twenty one minutes, making it one minute shorter than Casino Royale, and the second longest for now because there's a real long one about to come out. They actually cut 10 minutes about two weeks before release because it was too long, so it would have been the longest until No Time to Die. Budget, somewhere between 150 and $200 million. I love when a budget isn't confirmed. I assume it's because of some weird tax break type stuff, but $30 million less than Quantum if it's at the upper end, and $50 million more than Casino. And it grossed $1.11 billion dollars the first and only movie well we'll see how no time to die does but we won't have the information when we cover it but uh the only movie on this podcast that we're doing right now that grossed one billion dollars uh, and also the only sony movie at that point to have grossed over a billion dollars until jumanji and spider-man finally got over that line that would make this far and away the most profitable movie we've done here followed by fallout by my rough estimations i am no uh expert in this but i roughly doubled the budget and added a bit on and uh so why why do you think this is the movie that does it well they made it a bit bigger i mean it's the the 50th anniversary yes it's 50th anniversary i don't know if casino flew under the wire because it did get a lot of buzz at the time quantum obviously was marred in various problems but i don't know if it's just sort of like everyone's caught on they know that daniel craig is good at being bond the trailer probably looked nice because deacons is involved they Uh, shoot in china they shoot in china yes that's international markets are kind of like a big deal in between these two you get adele to do the song yeah and it goes a bit bigger in some ways and kind of in some ways to its detriment it's a little bit less it it, well it's not concerned with the overall plot it's just here's an isolated bond movie and like you wouldn't know that going in but i don't know it's it's a strange one but yeah i I think the asian market is probably a huge part of it yeah i mean but that's i think it's the most interesting thing is like the two good movies as far as i'm aware having lots of spectre but like they're the (laughs) ones that are like kind of separated from everything else they're just focused on telling a story that is contained within the movie yeah you could conceivably take things that happen in them and pick them up later but it's not picking up on anything that happened previously bond is still you know a bit depressed and alcoholic but it's not played as a outright beat in the way that it is with vespa partially because there's 
not really anyone left who knew her, M, but it, it does feel like a here's just a Bond film. And... Is is this the longest gap between... I mean, obviously, like, five years is the longest one now with the, the No Time to Die and Spectre, but like, is this the uh, longest wait between... I think it's tied for third longest, because obviously... Um... There's a couple of long gaps, but, like, within a Bond actor's oh, run... okay, yeah. ...where, like, they still come back. Like, not, not yeah. someone getting replaced, but, yeah. like... I... I think so, yeah. I think so. Yeah, because I mean, because obviously, like that's that's one of the more interesting things about this movie is you get two movies back to back, which are James Bond as like new double O agent. Obviously, he's done stuff, but his first kill is the very first scene of Casino Royale, mm-hmm. and then this movie, he's a little bit slower. He's too old. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. He's too old. And obviously, like there's a very short half life, but they've made a very concerted choice to. <laughs> this isn't just a James Bond as spy story. This is a James Bond nearing the end of his tenure story i think it's effective though for the story they're telling but my biggest thing with this is i left this movie being like that's it that's the last bond movie they don't ever need to make one again because it feels very like and this is him at the end of his his career but then also like that ending is very like and then all the movies you know from before happened but yeah it is very like his last day on the job type story uh but then he goes on to do two more at least so they of course greenlit a sequel to quantum of solace but mgm went bankrupt in 2010 which delayed production they they got out of it peter morgan was initially the writer and he claims the final film is based on his ideas, but Sam Mendes is like, nah, that's not true. Jez Butterworth did some uncredited scripting. He went on to get an official script credit on Spectre, I believe. Uh, the initial plan was to continue the quantum plot, but then they didn't. <laughs> and there was also speculation that Jeffrey Deaver wrote a Bond book called Carte Blanche that people speculated it would follow that, but they were like, nah, nah, we're not doing that. It's Fleming or nothing. Despite being 43 years old and struggling with the physicality, Daniel Craig agreed to return. Mixed messages from him. He said he was lucky to have the chance, but then he also said he's been trying to get out of being Bond since they cast him in the first place. I would imagine that was said somewhat tongue-in-cheek. He will say a much more extreme thing just before or just after Spectre. I think just after. So keep an eye on that. And then he, once he was back on board, courted Sam Mendes, who he'd worked with before, and he said that The Dark Knight was a huge influence. No one has ever said that. No filmmaker or producer has said we were influenced by The Dark Knight. But Nolan said he was influenced when making his Batman films by old Bond movies, so it's reciprocal. Mendes lobbied hard to get Bardem cast as Silver, thought he was one of the few actors who could pull off what he had in mind for him. Bardem got the script translated into Spanish so that he could like learn it inside and out, because he speaks English, but obviously it will uh, connect with it more if it's in Spanish. So he, he read it all through in Spanish, learned it, and then and then he brainstormed the look with Mendes, and there was a lot of speculation that his look is based on Julian Assange. Judy Dench has more screen time in this movie as M than Desmond Llewellyn managed in Seventeen Q performances combined, which makes M the second most recurring character in terms of screen time in the Bond franchise, which is pretty fun. I believe Ben Whishaw managed more screen time as Q in this movie than um, John Cleese. John Cleese managed in his two ill-fated appearances. And uh, fun fact: this is the second time ever Bond has been shot 
which is, I did not believe that. Like, I was like, oh, surely he gets shot all the time. But no, first time since Thunderball. And also the second time he has ever cried, the other one being when his wife, Dunn, died at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The second one more believable than the first, but bad shots are our Bond villains. So our agent is James Bond, again, played by Daniel Craig. As I said, I, I think he's a little bit less, like, openly depressed, but still clearly carrying that darkness with him. And M talks about he's from the shadows, and they talk about his childhood trauma, and, you know, we delve into his childhood the most extensive. I believe we ever have in a Bond film and they're showing the kind of mental and physical effects that his career has had on him but then despite all of that would you say he's like at his most sort of cheeky and banterish and, and, and flirty I think he's got a little bit more energy in Casino Royale mm. than some of this movie because he's younger I guess <laughs> yeah like I think I think there's a bit more banter and I think in terms of the franchise I think he's got the most chemistry with Eva Green Mm-hmm. It, it's like Eva Green he's got great chemistry with he's obviously got great chemistry with Judy Dench mm. Javier Bardem with Maz Mikkelsen he's got great chemistry with <laughs> yes. um, both and former th- professional rugby players him and Bardem so they talk really? about rugby a lot yeah well semi-professional and then and then kind of like the, the, the new recurring cast that gets introduced in this movie yeah. like are all very good and obviously yeah. like, I know, it, it's a weird one where like I do think he is back to being cheeky after being so despondent in the last one but like it lacks the scene on the train that <laughs> yes true so our mission a ghost from m's past begins to target her orchestrating a grand conspiracy to uncover the identities of various government agents and puts her job and her life in danger there you go i paused for effect let's talk about this movie forever bond and a character called eve spoilers it's money penny fail in their pursuit of a mercenary who has stolen not the knock list but basically the knock list from mission <laughs> impossible it's the same list actually <laughs> money penny inadvertently shoots bond after m insists that she takes a compromised shot the opening shot is like that long out of focused hallway shot it's uh and it's got the like stinger of the bond theme i feel they're using the bond theme a lot more here than they did in the uh, first two craig ones like i think it was almost entirely absent thomas newman's score to this movie is great yep it won I... it got nominated for like four different sound related oscars it's it's crazy <laughs> yeah i love that they managed to interpolate like i love the bond scores that interpolate the the theme into the movie yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and like there's the scene where he's like standing on the boat gliding up to the to the casino and mm-hmm. uh, that then skyfall starts playing like the uh, the like orchestral version it's like yeah no, this yeah, is good yeah, yeah. um the fact that billy eilish and hans zimmer have worked together on the new bond song says to me that like that's also going to be like in yeah. the score to the movie you'll be pleased to know that my mission to not hear it until i see the film is so far successful i have avoided oh, that's it. good yeah it, it's good i like it I'm a fan. The score to this movie is great. There's a really good sense of sound. Um, This opening sequence is... It just kind of gets going straight away. It is very much like a cold open sort of thing. Maybe less distinct than the other ones, but like it sort of does feel like an episode of TV in that the pre-credit sequence very much is like a... Here they are on a mission. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like resetting down the M's a bit of a bitch in this Yeah, one. like, in- Bond wants to save the life of an agent called Ronson, and she's like, no, go 
go get the list or whatever, and it's sort of an inversion of the first movie, but, like, where Bond was very, like, no, I have to go do this, and disobeying her orders, but, I don't know, she's always been quite ruthless, I guess, is the idea, but, yeah, they leave that dude to die, and he's probably, he's fully, like, they'll be too bloody late when they're, like, there's an evac team coming. Tanner is still here. Ben will now give us his ten-minute monologue about Tanner. What? Why would you do that? Oh, because, uh... (laughs) (sighs) <laughs> he's punchy he and money penny while driving she clips her wing mirror and he was like you weren't using it anyway and then she deliberately knocks the other one off and says i wasn't using that one either so like you know i can handle this level of like because obviously bond is always on some level misogynistic but i like it so far in the craig ones where it is like this where it's like he starts off being misogynistic and then the woman gives it back and it's like okay cool we're fine everyone's on even footing although he does literally take the wheel from her but i feel he would do that to a man as well so you know they do the big bike chase on the bazaar rooftops does every bond film with daniel craig have to have a rooftop chase scene all three so far have i believe specter has one and i'm sure there will be one in no time to die (laughs) it feels like kind of like action movie shorthand at this point where it's like we're in a country where you can ride motorcycles on the rooftop of a building look at these wacky countries with their somewhat flat roofs they do all the shenanigans on the train with the like I'm going to call it a digger, because I can't think of the grown-up term for a digger. I was going to say JCB, but that's a brand. That's a brand. A, a construction vehicle. Construction, oh, right, so this is... Okay, I wanna, a crane I wanna on treads. I don't know what to call it. It's a digger, this, Ben. This, this <laughs> sequence, very cool, very fun. Yeah. But it's the start of where they're trying to kind of thread the needle of the tone of the movies that have come beforehand, where they're a little bit serious, a little bit more modern, mm-hmm. with the kind of tone of the older Bond movies. And there are only a couple moments like this throughout the movie. And it was just kind of watching it. I was like, this is a little bit sillier than what I'm kind of expecting from a movie. And obviously it looks great. And the bit where he like runs along the top of it and then jumps out and adjusts his tie is cool. Yes. (laughs) But it does very much, it feels like not out of place, but like because this is the 50th anniversary of Bond, this is the big anniversary movie. They're trying to kind of pick from lots of different eras of Bond. This film is stuffed with minor and major references to other Bond movies and this kind of stuff and like we'll get to the one of my other big kind of like not egregious but like it just feels it's weird because the movie isn't set up for the kind of humour that they're getting from the way the sets are done it's not quite as campy as some of the old Bond movies and so a move like this it's it's Komodo Dragons isn't it yes (laughs) I'm not wild about either either this scene or that Komodo Dragon scene I don't think this is a perfect movie by any stretch and I don't think it hurts the movie but it is one of those things where like it feels like a lightness of touch to the tone like something like Mission Impossible you wouldn't bat an eyelid if this happened no because they've established themselves as the wacky fucking Tom Cruise is doing cocaine and jumping out of things yeah exactly (laughs) whereas like the last two movies of this again a little bit more self-serious where the humour's coming from interpersonal relationships as opposed to the action and and the stuff that they're doing yeah 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 Killing Bond, ostensibly, is certainly a choice to start a movie. <laughs> it's a big one. It goes into the big song. Uh, yes, which we'll talk about at the end because of how we segmented these shows. But All right. Well, you know, that's what we do. If we get to the end and we've already talked about it, then what do we do? Go home. Okay. He's wrestling with this with Patrice and Money Penny. He's like, I don't have a clean shot. And Emma's like, no, if I can take it. And she shoots Bond and Bond falls off a fucking bridge into the water. And sure does look like he's dead. Three months later, M is pressured to retire by Gareth Mallory, chairman of the ISC. 
due to Bond's death and them failing to recover the knock list. I'm just going to call it the knock list. And then her day gets a lot worse as the hard drive that was stolen is accessed remotely using her computer. Uh, she receives a threat to her phone or something, or to a laptop, I don't know. And then MI6 is bombed. So not a great day for M. They do the little close-up of the bulldog, the horrible ugly bulldog ornament on her desk at the beginning as she is struggling to... Uh, Right, Bond's obituary. Right, fucking finds is here. He's so goddamn good. Is we this l- the movie? Is Bond movie with the most Oscar nominees in it? I believe so. Like Judy Dench, Javier Bardem, Ray Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Albert Finney. This is a stacked cast. Yeah, Roger Deakins. <laughs> Roger Deakins. <laughs> Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes. I don't. I don't know. It, it feels more prestige just because of the people who were involved. I think fiftieth anniversary. Let's get everyone. Yeah, I mean, and it's no no insult to like Martin Campbell or anything like that, but this feels like a level up in terms of the quality of acts that they're getting. And obviously, yeah. like Naomi Harris doesn't get her Oscar nomination for a couple of years after this, but she's still great. Yeah, and so is Ray Fiennes. He's just great throughout. He has really good back and forth with uh, Judy Dench and Daniel Craig. I Um, am hoping he gets to retain the role for a, a good long while. Depends how many more of these they make, doesn't it? Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, obviously, it just depends. Because like, obviously, Judy Dench got to get spoilers for the end of the movie. Ray finds his end. Yes. At the end of this movie. Mallory. But, Mallory Archer. Exactly. It's all connected. <laughs> no, but at the end of this movie, he becomes the new M. He's in Spectre. He's in No Time to Die. But Judy Dench got to do it for two Bonds, essentially. Yes. And I would not be surprised if she makes cameo in No Time to Die. She makes cameo in Spectre. I've heard this. Maybe she was too busy filming Cats. But it would be <laughs> oh. nice... It'd be nice to have like another actor kind of like progress over multiple ones, but it also feels like is Ray Fiennes going to want to be tied down to a contract that means he does seven of these, especially after having just wrapped up doing Lord Voldemort for ten years of his life. Yeah, but it's possible that this is like we're going to call you in to do an office scene once every three years, and we'll give you a million dollars. I don't know. An observation I had. Silver's message to M, the whole think on your sins or whatever. It's a ripoff of Jurassic Park. Sure. <laughs> How? I don't know, just the uh uh uh. Uh uh, okay. I meant more that Sherlock had become a thing, and uh, this yes. feels very Moriarty, and also they do that shot of him standing on the rooftop in London near the end that. Sherlock does, and Electra does, in The Defenders, which I'm sure is where they got it from, even though it came out after. Yeah, I don't know, it felt very like that, like British cool mystery hacker shit going on, I don't know. Yeah, right right down to them casting Andrew Scott in the next movie as well. <laughs> yeah. Surprised though, Bond is alive, he is fucking and drinking in Istanbul still, or near Istanbul, looking pretty miserable about it, but then when he learns about what's happened back in London, he returns, and despite failing various mandatory tests, he is reinstated. I thought that this scene was in the Caribbean because I'm an ignorant white boy. But no, it's Turkey. Bonk. I wasn't going to correct you with the text. Ah, well. Well, you know, I hadn't seen it in five years. You see beaches, you assume. Anyway, the bullshit thing with the scorpion on the hand, the shot, that's pretty bonkers. And then, yeah, he's he's teleported back to uh, M's home, where she told him never to come again. And, and there he is. Gives a shit about not trusting him and everything. She is like, oh, we sold your flat, we put all your things into storage, it's what we do when we have unmarried employees with no next of kin, you know, a nice rib at his uh, playboy status and all of that, and telling him he's not allowed to sleep there. Like, they, they continue to have an excellent sort of 
petulant child and scolding mother type relationship. And it's, yeah, it's the key thing in this movie in a lot of ways. They get a lot of scenes together and they're great in them. No, they are, they are, and I think that's one of them. For two actors who don't share a lot of screen time together in the movies, because quite often M is the voice in the ear, mm-hmm. but each movie has progressively kind of, like, had them interacting more together. They go out of their way to have M fly in in Quantum of Solace to have another face-to-face scene with him with before the end, and... I know, it, 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 this feels like they have more of a relationship than some of the other movies. Yeah, well, we, we talked about how, like, <laughs> she's, like, the only woman in his life he doesn't want to fuck, and she then takes on this surrogate mother role, almost, where, while she's told him off a lot, and, and, and like, briefly fired him, almost, she, for the most part, has always defended him, even when she's receiving this enormous pressure to yeah. dump him basically that's the thing is like she she still likes him a lot this is it feels like she's kind of his agent more than anyone else and obviously we don't meet 001 through 006 or anything like that so we hey, don't know what we met alec trevelyan back in, in golden eye he betrayed her he was 006 old scene bean we don't get to see anyone else and you could like she has feelings when she's writing his obituary yes like more so than you'd think for someone who's supposed to be quite cold-hearted and steely for these kind of things and you can tell the relationship's different than between Silver because I, I feel like she doesn't have the same empathy for Silver that she does for Bond. Yeah, she seems like to she, not. I, I feel she doesn't regret it. I mean, she has like a bit of a look, but like it's not like oh, he's my biggest regret. She's like, I did it, and I it was the right call, and he's certainly very hung up about it. <laughs> we get the secret tunnels going in, you know, allegedly Churchill's bunker and all this shit. The new secret MI6 headquarters is a weird high-tech underground lab. He He's struggling with the tests. We get a little montage of him doing them, and like I like the touch of Tanner's like, we can do this another day. And he's like, yes, could we? And then as soon as he's out of the room, he collapses and stuff, and he, he can't hit the target on the shooting range and, and, and stuff like that. We get this comment from Tanner about when M was running the Hong Kong office, which will come up again later, but I do like delving into her past of, of, you know, the various assignments she's had over the years. I really like the word association. Day, wasted, gun, shot, agent, provocateur, woman, provocatrix, which is not a word. Heart, target, bird, sky, M, bitch, <laughs> sunlight, swim, moonlight, dance, murder, employment, country, England, and then skyfall. Done. Long pause, and then done. It's a lot of fun. One thing, one thing I'm kind of disappointed in, and this is such a minor thing, mm. but when they talk about the M's time at the Hong Kong office, yes, she finishes working the Hong Kong office in '97 after GoldenEye came out. After GoldenEye came out, and it's, <laughs> it's such a simple thing where it's just like she finishes in '95, and that's what cues her up. Like you just you have it be she was in the Hong Kong office from '89 to '90. As, as much as we all want it, they have confirmed out loud it is a reboot. He is not the latest in a line of Bonds. No, I know, but it's one of those things I where, know, like, I know. it's it such an cute. easy, it's such an easy date change to just have a date. Like, hey, for a maybe movie she that was on so... Secondment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but for a movie that is so obviously indebted to being the 50th anniversary and throwing in, like, you yeah. get a new M, you get Money Penny, you get Q, yeah. like, you have the Aston Martin. There's all these little hat tips and nods to the history of the franchise. The and all for PPK. And uh, the, one of the easiest things in the world would have just been to have, she starts in the M office, or in MI6 in London, in 95, the same year that Goldeneye comes out, is such a quick and easy change. I know. His little comment, 
MI6 blew up and that bloody thing survived because she has the bulldog again on her new desk. Mallory gives her shit about you're sentimental about him and asks him why did you come back and making little jabs about his age and his ability. And then you get Bond sort of being like, do you see a lot of field action? And it's like, I like their dynamic because it obviously starts out in a place of disdain where Bond assumes that Mallory is just a politician, doesn't have the right priorities and all that and it will be revealed that he knows his military record inside and out and they've come to respect each other and everything but I do like this sort of initial like because I don't think he's being overly a dick about it but he's kind of playing that role of like somewhat of an antagonist but I also think he's not being that unfair no that's the thing is he's kind of like I've been told to do this their request is completely fair you have fucked up you've let this vital piece of information go I don't trust this guy being in the field after he's been like shot like nothing that he does feels like the kind of like mustache twirling like they're getting in the way of the plot he's just kind of going like yeah is this wise is this what we should be doing yeah it reminded me a bit of Lawrence Fishburne in Mission Impossible 3 where it's like he is kind of dickish to them but his words aren't unfair and then you're expecting him to maybe be villainous well maybe not as much of that here but then he turns out in a much better place yeah they don't tell Bond that he failed the tests so I guess M just overrode that decision that was mandatory. They analyse shrapnel that he cuts out of himself, uh, and he says for her eyes only, and they use it to identify the mercenary from the beginning as Patrice, and he is going to be in Shanghai, where Bond must head after meeting the fir- the new quartermaster, aka Q. Paddington AKA is Paddington. here. Paddington is here. Bond is very get your dad, son. And he's like, I could do more damage in my pajamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you could do in a year in the field. And they have a fun back and forth. And again, I feel they start in a place of derision that ends up in a place of respect where, you know, he's like, where Q is like, he's the only one that could do this, and and Bond starts to, like, have some fun with him back. It's all good fun. It gives him the ID-locked PPK, because this film is Metal Gear Solid now, and he gets a little transmitter, and he says, were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that sort of thing anymore. So more nods. Yes, to the exploding (laughs) pen from GoldenEye. Are you just going to entirely ask rhetorical questions in this show? Yeah, no, I don't know. I'm feeling really punchy today for some reason. That's fine, because we're off to Shanghai. Uh, Bond... Oh god, this scene is so gorgeous. I know. Every goddamn shot in Shanghai, especially the uh, when they're in the skyscrapers. Yeah, it's, it's all the lights fly, flying around, yeah. and just the composition of, like, the assassination. Mm-hmm. And, like, 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 from it... across another yeah. building. From across another building, and, ju- and you can see into two different rooms, and they just sit a guy in front of a picture, and then the moment they're kind of, like, white thing is taken off they just shoot in the back of the head and uh, mm-hmm. just everything about it looks so good jo- roger deakins is so good he's, he's quite good at his job isn't he? he's quite good at his job it's shocking he's only won two oscars um <laughs> historically the coen brothers uh director of photography obviously we spoke about him on no country for old men that movie looks gorgeous so many of his movies look completely gorgeous the uh the shot at the end when they are walking across the like the moors with only the fire that is so like the nighttime it- scenes and no country 
departure from. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, he really should have won an Oscar for Over Brother Where Art Thou because that movie did so much cool stuff and yeah, uh, but we're getting off yeah. off track. Like, this no, feels no, like that's most of what I wanted to talk about here is is just how beautiful that is. This like quasi House of Mirrors effect going on with the lights and the glass and yeah, and and the fact that like the stuff that they're kind of shooting to make obvious is also part of the scene where the way the light is shining off the windows Patrice is paying attention to and mm-hmm. so Bond like stops himself from walking to like not disrupt yep. the reflections and he waits for those kind of moving signs to move out the way before he moves in and it's just this great piece of like lighting and set design and and, and blocking just... and staging and yeah, yeah and then the fight's great as well and yeah and then this, this feels like this this was like the centerpiece for the trailers wasn't it I believe so yeah the little lift jump he does to get up there Daniel Craig did himself it's a pretty fun little moment I like Severin looking at him uh, you know, like, because he's witnessed this assassination that he has no clue about. He accidentally kills the assassin. Well, he drops the assassin, the assassin kills himself, whatever. And then there's just this woman looking at him from across. And it's just, oh, it's beautiful. Money Penny is back. She erotically shaves him. For real. She did some training. Allegedly, sales of uh, cutthroat razors were boosted 400% in the month after this film came out. I'm just imagining kind of like people like they're going to their wives and just going, I, know, I, want you, I want you to shave me. I love the degree to which... Let's face it, straight white dudes are fucking nerds for like, oh, I saw this in a film, I'm going to have this affectation in my I mean, life I mean, now. We haven't, we haven't really touched on it. These movies are made by Sony. Yeah, they are. There's an awful <laughs> lot of product placement in this one. So much product placement. Yeah. Every laptop is a bio. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's he offers pretty, him a Heineken, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's just one of those things where, like, there's an awful lot of, like, this is a movie that is known, or a franchise that is known for luxury brands. Like, I feel like Aston Martin sales owe at least 80% of what they do to these movies. Like, there are people now, there are people who are born and were watching the James Bond movies when they were young who, watching this movie, go, one day I will own an Aston Martin. Yeah. And th- then they well, managed to do that. We did Catch Me If You Can, where Leo is dreaming of being Bond and he got he buys the Aston Martin in the suit and he wants the exact one that Sean Connery wore and everything. Like, yeah. it's it's iconic. It's very much lifestyle porn for a lifestyle that a lot of, like, straight white guys will never do. Yes. Um, not that his <laughs> sexuality has any reason for why you could, could not be a spy. No. Um, <laughs> But, but no, it's just one of those so singularly, almost like a fetish thing. And oh, yeah. Like, you buy the Bond book and you make Bond's signature sandwich and Bond's signature drink. And, and yeah, it's 100% a thing. Like, yeah. To be Bond, the Bond fragrance, the Bond car, like all of it. And then and then have your money penny shave you <laughs> uh, overlooking a gorgeous... Again, everything about this movie is so well shot because... Yeah. We've moved from Shanghai to Macau and there's a lot of, you know, like the lanterns and the the dragon type architecture and everything this gorgeous casino with its little sand pit which have unfortunate cgi komodo dragons in them but it's a wonderful looking building until that bit happened i mean i mean yeah i mean <laughs> I, I mentioned it when like the score interpolates skyfall and it's just mm. the shot of him going through the lanterns standing stock still on the boat and it's just like yeah this is i like the touch of he and Money Penny are talking to each other in earpieces, and he's like, "Don't touch your ear," which is a casino royale. Yeah. yeah, very good. And stuff. like, it's it's all one shot as they walk through. Oh, and... the audio mixing when like there's the effect on her when she's in the earpiece, and then when they physically move past each other, and it seamlessly goes into like actual voice dialogue, and then back again. Oh. 
Great stuff. Yeah, no, again, this this whole sequence is really, really good up until <laughs> they start to get into like the goofy action stuff. But I, I just, I, um, I, I don't think Veronese Marlowe is. I don't think she's great. No, nope. she has a presence enough. But like the con- the the bit where they're talking together and he orders the drink, and you just kind of cut to them, and the bar the barmaid is kind of just shaking the martini thing, and yeah. he goes like, "Perfect." perfect. It's like again, it, it's those kind of like little fun cheeky references. They don't need yeah. to do the whole bullshit like shaker not stirred line you just have someone shake a cocktail shaker and you understand yeah. that his drink order is evolving film by film you know, yeah he's gradually getting to the vodka martini shaker not stirred his line of did i overcomplicate the plot is that a dig at quantum of solace or <laughs> i think you're reading too much into that mm, okay so he does the sherlock thing you know you're not looking at the bodyguards for protection they're watching you as in like they're making sure you don't go anywhere you're afraid of this person and then the tattoo on the wrist you're you know you were sex trafficked at 12 and this man saved you and you know all these quite problematic narratives but and then uh, komodo dragon stuff happens they look bad sam mendes said he would never work with a cgi character again <laughs> And he loses his magic uh, palm print gun immediately. So Yeah, and I, I kind of wish Q referenced this. Yes, same. Yeah, it looks bad. And yeah, it's, it's just, again, it's just that thing where like they they're going for the goofier tone of some of the Bond movies, but it's like you. I didn't... assume it is a nod to when Roger Moore ran off the back of the crocodiles because he runs off the back of the Komodo dragon to jump back up. But it doesn't look good. There is a running theme in this podcast where when they introduce CGI, it generally doesn't look very good because it's yeah. not a high priority for them. No. And I feel they're working with people that don't use it that much. Yeah. Or not okay. for this kind of thing, maybe. And then they got on a boat. They do! She's sad he doesn't make it. And then thrilled. And then sex. In a shower that he just gets into unannounced. And it's hot, but like, <laughs> it's rapey as shit. <laughs> I mean, I think there is an implied consent. I, I know. I'm not saying she's objecting, but as a general social behaviour, don't yeah, just no, get no. into as the in, don't, shower don't... with a stranger. No, this is this is very true. Obviously, obviously, he's making a lot of assumptions on how much he managed to woo this person. I feel like talking about her sex traffic past um, maybe would be something triggering for someone, and that maybe, maybe... maybe not a prelude to sexual activity. Allegedly, Marlowe said that Daniel Craig was incredibly shy about doing this scene, and he wanted to keep his underwear off. And she was like, "No, no, 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 no! I'll do whatever it takes to make sure you're comfortable." So they're naked here, and uh, he was a gentleman about it. I assume Sam Mendes' ex, his wife, uh, Rachel Weiss, was watching. I don't know. That must have been awkward, directing, you know, your ex. I didn't, I didn't, actually, I didn't actually realise that Rachel Weiss and uh, Sam Mendes were ever together. I think so, briefly. I mean, she briefly. was engaged to Aronofsky, wasn't she? And she's yeah, and they had, they had the child together. Oh, one kid. Yeah, yeah. They get on a boat. They go to meet Raoul Silva on his private island and... Silver is great, yeah, quite frankly. This, this first sequence, and I think it's a shame because it's an hour into the movie, an, an hour, hour and change. Ten. Yeah, and the shot, they've tied Bond to a chair, they've taken Severine away. Mm-hmm. And they do the long walk. The, the long walk, and he starts from the very distance, and he's talking the entire time. He's just this magnetic monologue. And you're like, oh yeah, Happy Bartem's a fucking great actor. Yes, isn't he? <laughs> and they resist the temptation to go in for a close-up until he's like literally walked to Bond. Like They built this set to do a one-er, and, and they, they 
distanced it out to match the dialogue and everything. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not particularly it's not a flashy one, but it's one of those ones where like because it doesn't draw attention to itself, and yeah. th- there is a movie that Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins did after this that very much draws attention to the, <laughs> the, the way it does its one shots. But this to me, it's not technically impressive because yeah. again, it's just you reset and go back to the beginning. But there's yeah. just something magnetic about it where like you just don't take your eyes off it. It's yeah. a singular like the shot is in service of the performance mm. and they just kind of perfectly work together and the speech he's giving is so good and yeah. I, I, this is this is the best Bond villain entrance that we've had in this miniseries like because oh, yeah. Mads, Mads Mikkelsen's great oh yeah but like his entrance is just he shows up but it, with that, like an African that's like or. his innate madness you know like I don't think the character is as well written as he acts it whereas I think this is both well written and well acted and I feel a bit hypocritical for saying that it takes too long for Lashif to turn up and then Javier Bardem takes an hour and ten minutes and Lashif had been in it it's just they haven't talked about him and I think that is the minor saving grace is this character before you know who it is has a presence in the threats to M and a Severin talking about him and it's when they're approaching it's like it's not too late you could turn back like they are trying to build this like mystery man before you see him but yeah it probably is too long until you get to him but um, I, 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 I don't know how else you would bring him in earlier I just yeah. kind of wish I, yeah. I don't know I think it just shave some time I think what I yeah I think what I'm missing more than anything is like I wish we had some context for his relationship with M they give lots of it don't they no no they I mean they give context but I just mean I wish in a in a franchise which obviously playing off your previous knowledge of it i kind of wish he was doing something like i wish he was trevelyan like i wish there would mm. obviously that's dumb but like it's just <laughs> something about it where it feels like oh this is another reference to someone yeah like from the past of the franchise pick up on some one line comment at some point about something that went badly for her in the past or yeah instead you know. so, so because the movie's kind of like whole sheet have to make it and it's not like it doesn't work because it does work ultimately and M, Silver and Bond's kind of like weird triptych relationship is really interesting. It's just, there's, there's just something about it where it feels like this is the 50th anniversary and I kind of wish there was some kind of obscure meta yeah. thing about it. In the way that people are speculating that Rami Malek might be... Uh, Doctor No. Yeah, yeah. He has his little story about turning rats into cannibals and how he and Bond are the last two rats or whatever. And then Bond guessing that he was... M's agent when she was in Hong Kong. He says how he was there from 86 to 97, so he would have been quite young if if we take the actor's actual ages, and he is one year younger than Daniel Craig. He would have been 17, but I doubt it. We have this, I don't know how else to say it, queer-baiting scene. <laughs> now, I read it as it's like, Bond is very, is a hyper-masculine character, and you can tell, based on some people's fucking absolutely insane responses to the rumours coming out about this movie, and like, oh, he might be gay, and stuff, and like, people like, no, I will boycott the film. I just read it as, like, Silva is comfortable in who he is, and he's trying to just, like, use it to make Bond uncomfortable, and then Bond rises to it, and he kind of drops it, 
but I don't know. Maybe there is just it, an it, element of they so, are just flirting with each other. <laughs> yeah, it's so touchy feely. And honestly, like, what's what's more manly than two men in bed together? I know, right? <laughs> like, like it, it's literally men times two. Like, it's it's so intrinsically manly. Two dicks um, are more masculine than one dick. That's just maths. It's just maths. The kind of way he touches and feels, and I feel, it probably is kind of like, oh, this is more of a locker boy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess in a similar way to kind of like how Sean. Sean of the Dead, like when Sean and Ed kind of do that, like almost gay flirting. They call each other babe and, and all that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing where, like, I, I don't want to say it's like people who are comfortable with their sexuality, but it does feel like two rugby guys. Yeah. Kind of like. <laughs> Sorry, but a friend of a friend used to know a lot of the rugby boys, and she said that. They had all fucked each other, basically, and I was like, "Yeah, that that probably tracks." To no, be yeah, honest. no, it, it does. It feels like that kind of thing where it's just like, "Yeah, no." There is obviously a problem with villains in history, like throughout film history, where like he's blonde, he dresses somewhat flamboyantly, he's a little bit effeminate, and then there is this queer coding going on, and it's like you know, othering gay people and 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 othering people who have a more queer sort of sensibility but i don't think it is quite played that way I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's, like, his gimmick. I think it's just... I, I think the character has so much going on that he isn't defined by that. No, and, I, I mean, it, but it is such a prevalent thing. Like, you have things, like... The one I always go to for whatever is, like, Ursula in, in Little Mermaid, who is so obviously <laughs> queer-coded, and and Rattigan in, in Great Mouse Detective, and... All the Disney films. <laughs> oh, lots of Disney films do it. Uh, I mean, Jareth yeah. in, in Labyrinth, is another one. Yeah. There's just, it's an awful lot of it and it's kind of going like, I don't know if it's just a prevalence of kind of like queer writers writing these characters because an awful lot of them are also voiced and based on very obviously queer-coded people but maybe the creative team isn't gay or isn't openly gay or people at the top aren't openly gay. But in this movie you have a gay writer who's obviously made the choice to do this. Yeah. Because even though like Neil Purvis and Robert Wade get the first credit lock on this, I feel like an awful lot of what ultimately makes it into the movie is John Logan. Oh yeah. And Neil Purvis and Robert Wade probably have like some kind of contractual thing where they just do the script first script for all these movies because mm. they're still on it two movies after this. Yeah, I, I feel they're just like the in-house Bond team and then they get outside people to actually plot the films and they're just sort of, I don't know, there for continuity. I don't feel like this is one of those cases where like the movie isn't in step with kind of what they're doing here. Yeah. Because and, and it doesn't they're, bother they're Bond queer, either. No, because they're queering Bond at the same time, is exactly, what I think yeah. I like about it. Yeah, because he says first time for everything as he like rubs his hands up his thighs and he says, what makes you think it's my first time? Like, I think he gives as good as he gets and like maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But I feel he's not made uncomfortable by queerness. So like, either way, go Bond. You have become as woke as you will ever be, probably. <laughs> He unties him, he lets him sort of walk around freely, he puts on his sunglasses, they're just having a nice stroll together, listening to music on this abandoned island. He has the- I would say Silver has this kind of- because he's not trying to be physically menacing, that makes him physically menacing in some way. Like, he has a kind of mystique about him, where he's just so calm and so, like, I am in control of it. And he makes these casual comments about, like, oh, you're not as good as an agent of me- as me, but, you know. He has such this omnipresent sexual energy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, like, how he just moves. And it's such a... 
intriguing performance from Bardem. Because well, I feel that's just Bardem, isn't it? Like the man, I mean, sure, the man is sex incarnate. Like. Yeah, like again, but it's just that like the whole bit where he they they walk outside and they find Severine kind of like tied handcuffed up, and beaten. tied up, and, yeah. and then he goes over and pours the whiskey on top of her head, or or is it bourbon, whatever, and then and they put the glass on top of her head, and and they have to have a marksmanship contest, and because he's read him his results, or is like, oh, she told you that you passed, you didn't, and she told you this, she didn't, and it didn't happen. And I like how Bond went along with this. It's just like, oh yeah, you just about passed your marksmanship test, and Bond should be there going like. I didn't. She told him you passed. He should probably know that he didn't pass, but redeem your marksmanship shot. And, like, he is visibly doesn't really want to do it, but then Silver kind of goads him into it, and he misses her altogether. And then Silver just murders her on purpose. Such an underplayed villain moment, and it's just a shame. It's, once again, the kind of, like, I don't even, I, I don't even want to call it fridging, because it's not like it's done for the emotional advancement of Daniel Cray's character. Like, no. they haven't even got to that stage of this character. Like, Severine is nothing. Although, every woman he has had a sexual dalliance with on screen has died. So, there is that. Well, I... <laughs> it's not better, but it's thematic. And then he says, what a waste of good scotch. So, fuck you, I guess. But again, I, the, the line is more him kind of, like, making it seem like he hasn't been affected by this. Yes. Mm. I think that's their saving grace, is when he is being like this, it feels performative. Yeah. He turns the tables on them all, he captures Silver, holds up the tiny little transceiver that he received earlier, and, and Silver had made the mocking comment about the little beeps and boops from Q, and he's like, it's the latest from Q Branch. It's called a radio. Yeah, that's fun. They capture him. They put him in a serial killer, like, movie prison cell, plastic prison. Yes, Magneto's plastic prison. (laughs) He escapes. He makes an attempt on M's life while she's on trial, kind of. But Mallory, Bond, and Moneypenny manage to stop it. When he first sees M for the first time in however long, he says, you're smaller than I remember. And a, a theme throughout this is kind of playing on M's age, for, a, for the first time, really. Uh, where she's always had this position of authority, and even when Bond is like, or other people try and give her lip sometimes, she gives it right back. But there are these kind of repeated moments of vulnerability for her, and for the first time, so people are making jibes about her age and stuff. And it being revealed that everything he said was true, and that she sold him out to the Chinese government, and he was tortured for months, and he tried to kill himself with a cyanide capsule, but he survived, and his fucking face and teeth are fucked. A creepy, creepy effect. It's classic Bond villain stuff. Yeah, like again, like the, the Bond villain with a physical deformity is mm. just how it goes at the moment. I mean, like, uh, I can't even remember. Matthew Almerich's character didn't have a physical Dominic deformity. Green, fuck you very much. <laughs> okay. I, I, it's been two weeks, I remember nothing about anything that happened to <laughs> well, that yeah, movie. Well, yeah, what happens when you don't give them any kind of affectation? <laughs> like, he's yeah. so forgettable. It is kind of cool, though, that like his whole face shape changes when he takes that denture out and everything. It, yeah, I, I love because the, they kind of like, they take it out and you can, it's not quite as impressive it's when he puts it back in mm-hmm. that always gets me, is like when he starts to put it in and then you see his cheek like, putting rise. back into place yeah. it's creepy. And they only do it for this one scene it's yes. not like, like there's no point in the movie where like he knocks his dentures out and for the rest <laughs> of the movie he's walking around with like the deformity, it's just this kind of thing where it's like, you 
forced me to do this thing that physically deformed me. Yeah. And whilst I don't hate you, you've changed my worldview of like what this is. Yeah. Because yeah, that's the thing is like it, it, he doesn't hate M. No, he loves M. Yeah. <laughs> we get Q doing Q stuff. S- some great high tech bullshit. <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> We're sure just monologuing his little socks off. And then Bond has right. to be the one that cracks it instead, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, like, <laughs> it's Bond who notices on the side. Obviously, there's going to be words building on the side. And he kind of goes, oh, what's that word? Why don't you use the only word that is highlighted clearly? Is the <laughs> Granbra. Yes. Granbra Station. I've done it. <laughs> I am a train nerd. Did you not know? <laughs> Bond's secret thing, he's a train nerd. I would love it if the rest of the scene was, like, Q giving him directions, and then Bond just kind of I know, I know my way around the district line, I've studied the maps long enough. But then he makes that comment, you wouldn't know anything about Rush Hour and the Tube. The reveal that, like, unlocking it allows Silver's plan to happen, and that everything that's happened has been all orchestrated by him, he wanted to get captured, he wanted M to be on trial so that he could do this, like he's arranged everything in the underground where he gets the uniform, all of that stuff. Bond like sprinting straight for his cell and we just see the bodies. Like that's another thing, until the end you don't really see Silver doing anything, it's all very him talking about how good he is and other people saying how he's scary and I think this helps with that where like they're just dead and you you don't know how he did it or anything. It's like the Joker in Dark Knight to be honest and I now realise that when <laughs> Mendez says that was a uh, inspiration that this is likely a direct take from that where uh, you know Joker just kills that guy in the room and it's more effective to not see it. Q and Bond bickering over the headset, I think, is a lot of fun. When he can't get the door open, he's like, put your back into it. And he's like, you've fucking come down here then. And, uh, oh good, there's a train coming. All that stuff. You get the very cheesy, he's keen to get home when Bond jumps on the back of the train. But, hey, I'll take it. Bardem, dressed as a policeman. Many people's fantasy, I'm sure. I'm a little bit annoyed. It's the tube station after where I work, so... Uh, sorry that not everything um, revolves around you. So where close. you work and where you go to uni. Uh, was that Thor 2? That's Avengers Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Okay, sorry. Equally brilliant. The they, same quality movie, the two of them. <laughs> they do the, uh, the tube train stunt where he sets off the explosion. He's like, I do hurt that wasn't for me. And he's like, no, 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 but that is. And then the train coming through the roof. <laughs> so I don't hate this, no. but it's just one of those things where like... It's fine. <laughs> it's fine, but also it's like they made a point of it being rush hour and mm. it's like the one empty train on the line. Oh, Benjamin. I've got okay. like it's okay. just it's just that weird moment where like you watch it and like there's no one on the train and I don't know if that's like the, the age rating going in. So like we can't have people on this train. That's mm. that's a lot of death maybe, that's gonna happen. Yeah, maybe it's paying that many stunt people. Anyway. Like, it's so very clear, and it would be fine if they just kind of showed the front of the train kind of hitting, and but there's, like, the lingering shot of, like, the side of the train when no one stood on it. It's like, was it just that, like, he blew up a siding and <laughs> wanted to attack him with, like, a train that was going into service, or...? Definitely something that we need to get into at length, I think. <laughs> uh... Ten minutes on Tanner. Yep. 
all the time we keep cutting back and forth to M's little uh, inquisition, and I do like Mallory saying to this woman that is like just completely going in on M, just for the sake of variety, might we actually hear from the witness? And then she reveals her husband died, who we saw in Quantum of Solace, I think. Xenoral. Uh, was it Xenoral we saw him in? I think so, that's the one with the bed open, they're, they're in bed together. Okay, well then, yeah, we, we saw him. In, uh, in Casino Royale, but yeah, and a subtle little reveal there, and she gets all, you know, let's talk about poetry, and do you feel safe, and Bond is from the shadows, and it's all, it's a very different take on the character, but it doesn't feel out of place, I wouldn't say. And then, you know, Silver bursts in, and is opening fire, and you get Bond, and Mallory, and Moneypenny all coming together, and the little wink at Mallory, and then shooting the fire extinguishers, and the, the casual sort of stroll while firing the gun, that's all good stuff, I Thing. And then we're off to Scotland, as uh, Bond puts M into an Aston Martin and uh, drives her up to his childhood home, Skyfall, in the Highlands. <gasps> I know, they said the name of the thing. They actually don't say it, it's just written there, isn't it? Uh, they say it earlier. They say it earlier, yes. Uh, and they leave a little trail for Silver to follow, and they basically home alone the house up in preparation. Q has been won over by Bond, Mallory jumps in to help them do this thing that they don't have permission to do. That's all fun. Just uh, got the go up the M9. You can keep a track of them, and it's just like, okay, yeah, no, yeah. he's good egg. Yeah, you like him. <laughs> yeah, we do. Bond threatens to eject M from the Aston Martin when she says it isn't very comfortable. Like, you know, again, the ejector seat is iconic. It, 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 it is iconic, but it's also one of those things where it's just like, this isn't this Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's it's like, is this the DB5 that he had in Casino Royale? Uh no, because that got completely trashed, didn't it? Oh, was that a different car? There yeah, there, there's two Aston Martins. There's the DB5 that he wins in the poker game. Uh, yeah. Well, and he leaves that in Miami, doesn't he? He leaves that in Miami, but he mm. could always bring it back. He could always get it flown over. Get and it have flown over. Yeah. Of course. Or he could just get a different fucking Aston Martin. All right. All right. Punchy Ben. <laughs> Scotland is beautiful. It is the motherland. Half of my family ancestry is there. It fills my heart to see the foggy highlands and everything so that was on a personal level very nice to see even though i think a large part of this isn't actually shot in scotland but some of it is was it all in studios uh some of it's surrey Ah, oh, no one's ever been to Surrey before. Nope. So she asks about his parents, and he's like, you know the whole story, and she's like, it's orphans, make better recruits, and it's like, you know, earlier on, they had the, the test, it was like, Skyfall, and obviously she snuck that in there based on what's in his file, I would assume. And then Albert Finney has found the time to, uh... Oh no, he died in Legacy, didn't he? Oh. Yeah, he's, he's switched over from the Bourne franchise to uh, come and be a nice man, and he confirms that James Bond is his real name. Boo, quite frankly. I really like the idea that James Bond is a code name and all of the Bonds have been different people, but... It's it's a fun one, but, like, you know why they've done it. Up and, yeah, yeah. As I feel a lot of people know, they were considering getting Sean Connery to play this role, but Barbara Broccoli. Broccoli? Broccoli, probably. Their, their name probably isn't Broccoli. Uh, it's Broccoli. Oh, okay. Barbara Broccoli didn't want to do a stunt cast, but I think the other producers were quite big on asking Sean Connery to come out of retirement. But, I mean, yeah, you know, I, Sean Connery shows up, I think everyone's quite distracted, quite frankly. I also don't think he would have physically been able to do it. 
Nope. Which I think is a. I think Sean Connery being in this role would be great. I think this would be a fantastic final role for Sean Connery to have, considering he hasn't done a movie since Extraordinary Gentleman. Oh God, that's so sad. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to confirm this. I don't think Sean Connery has acted on screen since Extraordinary Gentleman. Alan Quarterman was his last on-screen role. He had a voice role in Sir Billy in 2012. <sighs> I like that he thinks Emma is called Emma. That he thinks that that's you know M Emma. I think I think the interesting thing though is apparently at the time when they did the first James Bond movie, someone said that the only person with a similar physicality to Sean Connery is Albert Finney. They're two people who have the same physicality, where they're quite big, broad men. Yep, quite agile was the way that they kind of, like, described them. So it is a nice enough wink. Yeah. And Albert Finney's great, obviously. Albert Finney's last acting role. before he, Yeah. Oh, that's... Yeah, he would die... Uh, did he die last year? Can't died last year. Yeah. yeah, he died last year. But no, he's... He, I mean, Albert Finney's great. Yep. This this sequence, it, it's nice. But it, again, it feels like in a movie which is being so reverent and reference-heavy, yeah. like, Sean Connery would have been perfect. And I don't want to say it would elevate it, because I don't think Albert Finney's bad... But it just, it feels like... It would be a thing people would talk about a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It feels like it's what was written in the script and like every intent was there for them to do it. Like, why else would you have James Bond's ancestral home be in Scotland if... Mm -hmm. Because Bond is canonically Scottish. It's in the books, man. Is he? Yeah. I thought thought he wrote him to be English. Nope. After Connery played him in the films, Fleming wrote it into his backstory that he was raised in Scotland. Fair enough. Scottish hero. They sold all of the uh, guns to someone in America, obviously. And uh, the initials on the only rifle they still have are AB. The B is obviously Bond, and it's a coincidence, but Albert Broccoli seems like a, a cutesy little nod there as well. There are secret passages. They are making weird little glass shrapnel bombs. They are putting shotgun shells in the floorboards. There is a sawn-off shotgun. It's all good stuff. It's, it's all fun, but again, it's like... It feels like it's a different movie. I don't know. I don't. Think or it it's... feels, like, or it feels like an older version of Bond, and it all works because it all comes together in kind of like quite a fun sequence. But but I don't think it's played for laughs as much as it's like, oh, they have nothing, and they've been very resourceful, and like M sitting there making these munitions out of what's around her, it makes her look very like sly and everything. But then we cut to Bond in his Aston Martin with the machine guns behind the wow, yeah. behind the lights. Yeah. We have nothing apart from these two machine guns installed in the car. <laughs> M drops the first and only F-bomb in Bond. She says, I fucked up, didn't I? And he says, no, you just did your job. And uh, he hates the obituary she wrote. And then she's like, I did call you like a shining example of British something or other. And he goes, yeah, that bit was good. Uh, <laughs> I like that. But yeah, I think in uh, one of the Timothy Dalton ones, he clearly says fuck, but like it's you can't hear it because of an engine or something. Their defences hold at first, but then Silver rocks up in a fucking helicopter with like explosives, and uh, Bond blows the house up to take them all out. After a trek over Frozen Lake, he finally kills Silver, but M succumbs to a fatal wound from a random henchman, of all things. As you said, Bond is waiting in the car after they've all passed by. I think that's kind of cute, but... I get that it is a little bit sillier than we're accustomed, but I'm fine. Albert Finney saying welcome to Scotland after he shoots that guy. Also fun. And Silver just chucking plentiful grenades through the windows, I think, is a nice beat, to be honest. And I like that them destroying the Aston Martin is... I mean, he says out loud, I always hated this place, but, like, that that is, hey, while, like, they're absolutely devastating his childhood home is fun. Because I guess it's, like, fucking unnecessary. But they do it anyway. 
And then, as I said, we get these like gorgeous long shots of the, you know, the fire is lighting up the night sky and they're all stalking around the moors and you can sort of see movement in the distance and the frozen lake and all of that. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I love Kincaid oh, and M run away through the kind of like tunnels that they've got. A lot of tunnels in this movie. Mm-hmm. But then like the only reason Silver knows that they're there is because like they light on the other side of the moor and so like he makes his way over there. And just like the lighting in this entire sequence is so good. Yep. I remember watching this in theatres and it wasn't quite as omnipresent now watching it on like a tiny screen yeah a tiny screen. Watch, watching it on like my regular size television it was like this looks good but i remember being in the cinema and kind of being like wow this is yeah. like the cinema bathed in this kind of like orange glow and yeah. everything being in silhouette and just it, this is a tremendous looking scene and yeah <laughs> um, and it's kind of shocking that this is really only like the third scene that silver and bond have together in the movie yeah that's true he is devastated that M has already been hurt. It's quite unnerving. Like, she's looking at him like, what the fuck is wrong with you? As he's like, oh my god, what did they do to you? And then the darkness of, like, giving her the gun and putting it up against her head and being like, kill us both with one bullet and everything. I don't know what she would have done in that moment. Like, maybe she would have seen killing him as, like, a I won, but it's what he wants, so who knows? But Bond shows up to throw a knife at his back just in time anyway, but he is very menacing in that church scene. Like, throughout, he has that undercurrent of menace because he's not, like, trying to be showy about his violence. Yeah, he's great. It's a great villain performance, but we'll talk about that again in a minute. Uh, M dies in Bond's arms. It's it's very sad. She asks, I suppose it's too late to make a run for it, and he's like, I'm game if you are. And her dying words are, I didn't get one thing right. Yikes, <laughs> that he didn't quickly slip something in there before, as it were, before she dies. But uh, yeah, very, very sad. And I think you said on a previous episode that, like, she maybe should have gotten a look at an Oscar nomination for this. Yeah, like, uh, oh God, who was up in, Oscar- in 2012 for the Oscars? Anne Hathaway, Amy Adams, Sally Field, Helen Hunt, Jackie Weaver. Yeah, Jude Dench probably should have been in there for one of them. Lame is Master Lincoln, the Sessions and Civil Lines playbook. Like, I could, uh, you could find room for Judy Dench in there. The greatest I mean, actress Anne ever, Hathaway. according to some. Who is this according to? I think there was some sort of poll and she won it. Uh, okay. I mean, she's been acting a long fucking time. She's got a lot of credits to her name. She is fantastic in, in Cats. Of course, of course. What is your favourite performance in Cats? Skimble Shanks, the Railway Cat. I don't have the mental faculties to respond to what you just said. So Skimble I'm... Shanks, the railway cat, the cat up the railway. Do we have to pay for that? Like, are we going to get a copyright strike now? I don't know. That was nowhere near good enough to get a copyright strike. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And as we know, the way to get around copyright strikes is to do covers. So, <laughs> thanks, Sass. Mallory hands Bond his next assignment. James playfully calls him M. That is the end of the movie. So Bond's on the rooftops. It's the Sherlock shot. Money Pony retires to desk duty. Talk about that in a second. But he gets the bulldog. <laughs> she left it in his in her will to him. And uh, it's revealed, if you look carefully, that her name is Olivia Mansfield. So, there you go. Moneypenny reveals her name is Eve Moneypenny. And she is now Mallory's secretary, I guess. And the office is a direct replica of how M's office looked way back in Doctor No. Thanks, M. 
and we get the POV gunshot and the 50th anniversary logo. And the thing I loved about this was it is 50 years of Bond, there are all these references. We've spent three films doing an origin story, and it feels like, and they humanised him, and they start at a point where he kind of doesn't really know what he's doing fully, and he's having to learn from his mistakes, and he goes through all of this, and I feel we end in this place where it's like, and then Doctor No happened. And I'm not saying they never needed to make a Bond film again, but I kind of feel Daniel Craig should have left it here. I'm sure, like, No Time to Die looks like it's going to be good, and Spectre's probably better than I remember it being, but I feel they had such an opportunity here that this had done so much, like, metatextual stuff with so many homages and linking back up and everything, and, like, what more can you do with this character now that you have fleshed out a fucking dinosaur, which seemed like an impossible task. I don't know, I just on some level felt, right, we took this franchise that in many ways should have remained in the past, and we actually did make something of it. Let's just stop here. But then it makes a billion dollars. It did make a billion dollars. It makes a billion dollars. <laughs> They've hired all these new up-and-coming actors who are yeah. going to have availability to do this kind of thing. I understand all of that, but like, it's why I feel a lot of why I rebelled against Spectre is I feel they kind of fly in the face of what they achieved here in order to just make another Bond movie. It's also like, I like Daniel Craig when he does other things. Like, I like Daniel Craig in Tintin. I like him in girl the dragon tattoo he's great in logan lucky knives out is mm -hmm. terrific and he's obviously launched a franchise on, launched a franchise but he does so little outside of bond like those are pretty much like his only four performances outside of james bond this decade what's that film where he's running in the woods in a war movie uh, defiance I, or something defiance defiance is 2008 so that's oh, the same right. that's um same as condom of solace i guess he's in his late 40s now, isn't he? Yeah, he just he just doesn't do that many movies outside of these James Bond movies, and I feel like it's because they take so much time, and yeah. yes, he obviously could have retired after this one, but it, it's just like, it feels like so many different things happened with this movie, where this reinvigorated the franchise after a soft Quantum of Solace. Mm -hmm. They knew they had someone special in Daniel Craig, because I think Daniel Craig is probably the best Bond. I think so. Certainly the best actor they've ever had play Bond. Yes, I think you get less argument if it was the best acting performance, like like the, the best dramatic acting as Bond but most of them yes. probably would say in their own words they weren't trying that hard to act but I, I also think he's also the best overall actor yeah it's, it's what, like, but it's one of those things where like Sean Connery is not doing it like Sean Connery goes into a movie and like you're playing a Russian it's like right my heavy Scottish accent is going nowhere <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's that kind of thing where like he just doesn't give a fuck whereas Daniel Craig does give a degree of a fuck even though he doesn't particularly care about the Bond movie Sean Connery is a good actor. Like, no, I like Sean Connery as but... a presence, but he is not going for Oscar nominations, and he's no. not going to carry some of the scenes that Daniel Craig has to do with his big, blue, gorgeous eyes. In. Well, yes. I just thought this was such a rare opportunity where, like, art meets life, and it would have meant something in a meta way, but yeah. it kind but of then, all goes away when you just make another one. But, but yeah, the, the downside is they get the rights back to Spectre. Yes, they do, which we'll be back with in a couple of episodes' time. And there will be some revelations about one Raoul Silver, who was played by Javier Bardem. Villain Watch, I think, obviously, Mads, 
is amazing. I think this is a step above. I think this is one of the best Bond villains ever because it has that... For one thing, he is successful in what he does for the most part. Like, his plan, he outsmarts them. And then he does end up... Well, he doesn't kill M, but M dies and he gets his final confrontation with her and everything. And it's like, him having that actual revenge-driven plot instead of, I want to blow up the world with nuclear launch codes or I want to become the richest man alive. Like, I think that gives it such a memorable edge and he feels like a dangerous presence and it's... It is very much trading in that space of Joker and these other villains that became very in vogue from the time. I'm not saying that Benedict Cumberbatch's Khan is, like, great, but, you know, obviously it's a big thing a lot of people are trying around this time. And I love Mads, but I think this is great. It's definitely top three villains that we've done so far. It's like, Fulton Hoffman... Javier Bardem, Mads Mikkelsen. I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's anyone else who comes close. Like, none of the Bourne villains are <laughs> on that. Like, because there's such grey area. Are they villains or are they yeah. just people doing a job, whatever it's, it is? It's Carl Urban somehow, who barely talks, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's their best one. <laughs> and, like, I mean, obviously Mission Impossible, the only one really we have to talk about is is Philip Zuma Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And Bond are so far two, two for three. I think I prefer Mads just because they spend more time together. Yeah. It's it's that kind of like antagonistic relationship which isn't even like overly antagonistic. It's there's just little bits that I feel work better. And whilst I do think Harry Bardem's doing such a great performance in this, it's like I'd introduce him a half hour sooner. I want more FaceTime between him and M. I don't think him and M actually have a conversation about what happens up until they're up in it's just like little changes like that where it's like this I is should... supposed to be the personal threat to them and and you make a decision to have the first hour and ten minutes of your movie not feature this villain who is such a presence. And I don't mm. know if it was... But they sketchy. do give him that, like, mythic quality with the, like, he's in the shadows and, and him and he and, and all of that. Oh, absolutely. But then it also comes down to what it's just like, well, I kind of wish he did it a two-part then, or I kind of wish he was still around at the end of the movie. Or But then I feel like he's, like, like, he's magnetic when he's on screen and he's, like... He is on a collision course straight for M. He has spent however many years plotting all of this out. This is his grand plan. He takes a shot and he misses. So he's like, right, fuck it, grenades, here we go. And like, he's like burning himself out in this big, brilliant firework to to do this. I think it's stronger for that. And I think the fact that he is a physical challenge as well in a way that the shift wasn't. Obviously yeah. the shift tortures him and it's sexy. They're both sexy, that's the thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> James Bond villains are good when they're kind of getting into like the sexual id of what this character is. And yeah. I think it's an under underspoken about thing is like James Bond is a controversial character. Not controversial. Problematic. I don't even want to call problematic. him problematic. Like No, no, I would say problematic. Prob- problematic Historically. Character. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like the movies that we are enjoying the most are ones that are kind of grappling with the kind of like id superego kind of stuff that plays in the background of like writing this character like the alcoholism the the weird sexual mm-hmm. energy to like so much of what he does are like interesting themes to grapple with with this character yeah. and it's the thread that we enjoyed the most in Quantum of Solace was Daniel Craig being this kind of like suicidal depressive broken man yeah <laughs> yeah uh, whilst the rest of the movie's kind of like just meh around him Patrice is barely in it and that's kind of it for villains but when you've got such a good one that's fine how's the theme so we can talk about it now adele is doing skyfall best theme so far so far yeah one of the best ever probably one of the best ever. i think the, my only issue with it is is if you know adele she's a bit more bluesy than she is in this 
I just kind of wish there was a bit more energy to the song. My only issue is I wish there was like, she's great. She does. She's a fantastic singer. <laughs> Shocking opinion there. <laughs> Shocking opinion. Fantastic singer. She wins the Oscar for this. First Bond song to win the to win the Oscar. Yep. Um, first Bond song to hit number one at the UK. Yep. I was going to say box office, UK song, single charts. I think one but of the just... only Oscar, f- I think it's like this and Lose Yourself by Eminem are like the only ones to top the charts in America that also won Oscars. Yeah, yeah. And, and but it's just like it, it, the, watching it again. I was kind of going like it's a bit slow. They went very stylistically away from what Bond songs normally are with you want Chris know Cornell. Name, yeah, Chris yeah. Cornell and then Alicia Keys and Jack White. And I feel this was very much uh, like we've talked about. It, it's the fiftieth anniversary. It's it's yes, it's a very hearkening to the classic Shirley Bassey esque Bond films, and like they got an artist who they kind of couldn't miss with, like Adele, yeah. huge, like one of the biggest gets they've had for a Bond song because they get a lot of people early in their career before they're huge. They I guess they get Tina Turner late in her career, but like this is Adele at the height of her like success. I don't know when Twenty One was in relation before, probably, but Twenty One, yeah, Twenty One's yeah, a year before this, I believe. Yeah, and she's. She's the biggest name on the planet, and they get her in, and she does a classic Bond song after they've alienated people maybe a little bit with their attempt at modernising it. The thing is, because they tried to get in Winehouse. Yes, which would have been great. Fun fact, she can't replicate these vocals because she claims her voice was deeper than normal because of pregnancy, so... Wow, yeah, it's a good song, and it is. And again, I feel like it also lends to the kind of like mystique around it, where like I feel like most of the conversations I had before this movie came out were about Adele doing the theme song, and like yeah. we need to hear this, and so again, big that they made physical CDs of a single, which, as you and I know, was a rarity. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I remember saying when we worked in in a retail establishment that like there is one song every single year that you should do this for. Yes. And it's shocking that they actually managed to, like, they realise that this is the song they should do it for. Uh-huh. And then you get stuff like Desposito, they're just like, no, we don't need to do a single for that. It's like, that would sell. Sure would. Disturbed's cover of The Sound of Silence probably would have done it. Yeah, that's a, that's another one. Um, Think how many 80-year-olds we had to turn away from buying a Disturbed album. <laughs> it's like, look, I know the company would quite like me to let you buy this, but I can't in all good conscience let you buy a I'm black not, metal yeah. album. It's, it's ten songs. And ten it's in the middle of the album as well it's not even like stuck at the end so they can just skip to it it's right in the middle oh yeah no skyfall good good song yeah Uh, the opening titles are pretty cool like his his body drifts down the water and then it like becomes part of the opening scene and it is kind of doing that mission impossible thing where it's giving away elements of the plot because you see the graveyard i think bond films have done that before but this is the most overt they've done it female agency so eve money penny Naomi Harris. As I said, their back and forth is mostly good. Their flirtationship, I think, is pretty fun because they feel pretty even-footed for the most part. But then I don't like that he implies this isn't for everyone. I get why they're doing it because they have to end up with her at that desk. And it's kind of cool that they're taking a character that didn't have a physical role and being like, hey, what if she's a badass field agent now? I kind of don't like that he says that and then he ends up being right, you know? I understand it. It's just, it irks me. Yeah, I mean, Naomi Harris is good. Yeah, I'm glad she stays around. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, they obviously, they got someone and they wanted her to have more to do in the movie and have it be a surprise at the end when it turns out she is who she is. And she had to deny that she was going into it. Yeah, (laughs) and, like, obviously, like, oh, Moneypenny wouldn't be in the field. Imagine it, a woman in the field. (laughs) 
but it just it feels like it feels like they're kind of like contorting themselves to get into the position where at the end it's, I kind of wish it was more of a like oh I've been assigned as protection for yes where I can masquerade as an assistant but actually I'm a fucking badass yeah exactly it's, it's that that would sit better that than oh would... no I've decided I'm not suited for the field because we had one half conversation yeah that would have been infinitely better um Genie Dench continues to be fucking great as yeah. I said there's more vulnerability here Bond ending up as sort of her only ally as she sort of you know we've never seen her get scolded to this degree like she's had the confrontations with the ministers and all that but like you know having her be on trial and this woman like completely go in on her and she's having to like you know she she's talking about poetry and her late husband and everything and, and having the villain tie directly to her and he's you know throughout he's joking that she's their mum and everything like that it's great it's it's the most substantial performance of one of the bond side characters ever it's judy dench going out on a high she cried when she found out that m was gonna die and she said how her in real life late husband had pushed her to sign on for bond because he loved bond and and everything and they should try something like this in the future like i'm not saying that ray fines has to have this huge role in the future but you know like making something of these side characters and giving them big plots well I think because like M was played by a few different actors yes previously mo- always by men but like never really part of the plot was just the person who kind of gave them like Bernard Lee is the, the most famous because yeah. obviously he played him through Moonraker and then afterwards it's kind of like just, actors a, come- just a dude <laughs> yeah actors come in I think Richard Brown does four movies mm. um, but then Judy Dench is there from Goldeneye she's been in the games I feel like she, she is the number <laughs> to yeah. on the call sheet for every single one of these yeah probably i don't know she just left an indelible mark on the franchise she has and it's so nice to have like this movie be a celebration of like what she's done yeah and for the 50th anniversary as well to because i mean obviously she didn't play it from the beginning but like since 96 so quite a long time and yeah and to give the classic character this this big send-off it's great. It's fantastic. Severine, Berenice Marlowe. Nothing really. Yeah, we, you know, we've got the problematic sex trafficked thing happening. We've got the like she's sleeping with a man she's afraid of and wants Bond to kill him for her to set her free. And I said what I said about the shower scene and, and all of that. The ongoing thing of every woman that Bond sleeps with dies. Like, it, it's bad stuff. They cut some of her scenes for runtime. I don't know if it would have improved it. I'm, but yeah, it's a badly handled character, I would say. <laughs> Her Wikipedia page, Berenice Marlowe, is she played the anti-heroine Bond girl, Severine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess she's on the bad person side, but... And then her just getting, like, tied to the rock and then shot. It's it's bad stuff. It's what we want to be getting away from. It. Me having my big speech about how they've humanised Bond and brought it into the 21st century is severely undercut by this uh, yeah. very classic Bond character. But now we We're have done. two movies, two movies in a row introducing female characters who will recur. Yay! Yes, next week is Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. I haven't seen it, and of all the films left, I have only seen Spectre. So two brand new Mission Impossibles and a brand new Bourne movie for me. And uh, I'm flying blind. You've seen everything from here except Spectre, right? Yeah. We have not both seen any of the movies that We will out. be guiding each other blindly through the dark. In a rogue nation and dealing with the fallout of Jason 
but whatever. Go to entertherealworld.com, like, comment, subscribe, check out all of our podcasts, check out Real Bad, which is Jerome and Kevin's Breaking Bad podcast, listen to Flooping the Pig, which is Kevin's Adventure Time podcast. When they eventually catch up with the old ones they did, they will be recording brand new content that is just for the real world and not just uploaded from some other website. And also listen to the Super Pantheon. They must run out of movies eventually, but we'll see how that goes. But yes, Ben and I will be back next week with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. We haven't quite managed to go for the the crown of the longest episode ever, unless you want to just talk about Birds of Prey for uh, 40 minutes or something. I was going to say, just put in some dead air. So the episode episode goes up as like two hours and 40 minutes, but like it just stops now. As we've always said, this podcast will self-destruct in 38 minutes. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) Secret.